Welcome to Sintalk. The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the cusps of creativity. We'll think about creativity and some not so well understood and unanswered questions. Do neural systems make the equivalent of a phase transition into what might be called a creative state? Is creativity domain specific? How does insight emerge? Can one computationally characterize the creativity problem? What is daydreaming from a neurophysical perspective? Is creativity a monolithic mental or a socio-cultural phenomenon? How does one explore the unknown solution space? And is artificial creativity possible in the long run? We are pleased and privileged to have three Sin Talkers with us here today. Dr. Diparnab Chakrabarti. He's a researcher at Microsoft Research in Bangalore. His area of research is theoretical computer science. Professor Arne Dietrich. He is a cognitive neuroscientist from American University of Beirut. He works on the brain mechanisms of consciousness and creativity. And Dr. Anita Mehta. She is a theoretical physicist of natural and intelligent complex systems. Her recent work is in the areas of physics of memory and perception. So Anna, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? At, at maybe the place where we want to understand what creativity is, definitionally very quickly. And you've had an insight or two about creativity and the mechanisms underlying it. So maybe it'll be good to go to that place where you had those insights about insights, if, if one can call it that, and maybe go through that process of how you ended up getting them. Um, and then we'll unravel and open a few questions there and see how it goes. Uh I think a good way to 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 think about how I thought about it is when uh, you look at uh, conscious processes in the brain and unconscious processes in the brain and uh, how they are implemented in neural networks uh, mm-hmm. at different levels, I thought about uh, different kinds and different types of creativity and how they might uh, be implemented at different levels of neural networks. Uh, for instance... Solving a problem consciously is mm-hmm. a very different process than an inside event uh, where you do not try to solve a problem deliberately, but it comes to you at some point. Right. These unconscious processes have different cognitive features. They are implemented in different brain areas and they can be described computationally in different terms. I thought about... Um, the difference in cognitive processes Mm -hmm. at these various levels, as we call them implicit systems and explicit systems. And that gave me ideas on how different types of creativity, including the flow experience, might be um, computed uh, at different 
networks at different levels in different brain structures. The idea that hit me involved the frontal cortex. And uh, I went from there. It occurred about uh, 15 years ago. And I've been thinking about this conceptually, theoretically, and doing empirical research on it ever since. So how did that idea hit you, Anna? Um, I don't think I had an inside event. Which kind of creativity was it, if I can call it that? And you have to be modest about this, of course. I don't think it was an inside event. It Mm. it came in quite systematically and uh, methodically thinking about this, theoretically what we know about the brain, of what are the possibilities of how uh, certain unconscious cognitive processes can reach the level of consciousness mm-hmm. and come up. And since uh, I, this is one of the things I concerned myself with when it comes to the study of consciousness, uh, I sort of developed this idea over time rather than having a single flash of, you know, a light bulb event in the back of my head. Right, right, right. And when you say different kinds of creativity, what do you mean? Are there three different kinds, five different kinds? What would the few categories be? Yeah. We don't need to do anything exhaustive, but just for one to get a feel for it. Yeah, one of the things in order to understand creativity, one of the things you have to do is uh, is divide the beast into pieces. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing than creativity. There are too many ways in which uh, we in the human population uh, manifest creativity. This is also depends on the domain. But one of the best ways to divide creativity is depending on the neural mechanisms that we know right. must underlie different types of creativity. Must must, um, given that they are psychologically different events. Mm -hmm. So one of the things is to have this deliberate way of thinking about a problem and coming up with a solution. And that is very often, uh, I think, um, unjustifiably not considered creativity, but deliberate, methodological, clean, conscious problem-solving can produce creative products. So that's almost entirely conscious. It's entirely conscious. Right. I mean, you solve a problem consciously and it can produce a creative product. Then, of course, you have the wilder type, the unconscious kind of processes. These are facilitated by uh, dreams, daydreaming, uh, that sort of thing. And it's an entirely different process. In fact, Mm. they are almost diametrically opposed. Mm. And that has to do with the neural networks that uh, depend on them. Then there is a third type, at the very least, it's mm-hmm. called a flow state. The mm-hmm. flow state is sort of when you're in the zone. And that state is different because it involves motion. Mm-hmm. So musicians, artists, but also athletes are in this flow zone. So when, when you say motion, you mean locomotor? From yeah, a locomotor. I'm, I'm talking about physical motion, physical motion. you moving, yes, movement, sure. Uh, sure. action. Sure. And that cleanly bypasses consciousness anyway. When you're in a flow state, you're not thinking about solving something. Right. Uh, if you talk to a musician and uh, they play and perform and they're in such a state, right. it, it, they will describe it to you as if it is something that flows automatically. And this neither fits the deliberate thinking mode nor the spontaneous thinking mode. Right. So we have at least, th- from, from a neuroscientific point of view, three different... Yeah. That's beautiful. Types of creativity that we can cleanly distinguish in the way they must be implemented by the brain. Right. And then we'll get to your ideas around this a little later, Arno, but what is daydreaming neuro, neurophysically? Um, how, so how? A, a couple of words about the, the, the system of attention, because mm-hmm. that is the main driver of whether something is in the focus of attention. 
or not. And when you are task-oriented or stimulus-dependent and you solve a problem, uh, your attention is directed towards that task. Right. Usually then you don't daydream, you solve the task. Right. But of course, sometimes you don't have a stimulus-directed uh, behavior, mind-wandering. And that is when your attention goes inside. And that also produces different kinds of thoughts mm -hmm. that are not as regulated, that mm -hmm. are not as linearly connected to one another. Mm -hmm. And as you have no stimulus to attend to in the environment, you end up daydreaming. And that is that the flow of ideas in consciousness is a bit more chaotic. And it involves also events that are mentally, physically uh, so if and, I if I if you wire my brain up, uh, Arne, is it possible for you to say whether I'm daydreaming or not, just from the EEG signals or fMRI signals or whatever? That is very hard to do, mm -hmm. but yes, we would have probably a better than baseline chance sure. to uh, predict if I just see your EEG, better than baseline chance to predict that you might not be task dependent, that right. you might be mind wandering. Right, right. Interesting. And deep sea, if we think of it from an algorithmic perspective, uh, is it likely that the nature of algorithms underlying some of these different types of creativity, and you may not share the same definitions or categories, uh, how do you think about this computationally? Computationally, uh, so maybe I can talk a bit about what creativity sure. uh, is in, from the computational perspective. Sure. I'll stick to the domain of, say, problem solving. Mm -hmm. So, which is probably in the first zone, which Arno mentioned, the it's conscious, goal deliberative, goal-directed, not, not, not unconscious. Yeah. But, uh, for example, if I give you a problem, and I give you a solution, and you can check if the solution is correct or not. Right. Verification. Verification might be an easy task. Mm -hmm. However, getting to the solution is what, uh, it's not clear if it's as easy. So, one of the... Uh, fundamental questions in uh, computer science, the computer science is, which is better known as the PNP question is that if you can verify something can you also get there can you also prove it can you also get to the solution right and uh, so that's very task oriented for example maybe we can uh, one of the things that uh, to, just to uh, make things solid there's this traveling salesman problem which says that uh, I give you a bunch of cities and you want to go and sure. visit all the cities, can you sure. do that spending, uh, traveling at most 10,000 miles? Sure. If I give you the solution, it's very routine to check. It's a right. routine procedure to check. Right. You just add things up and that's going to be less than 10,000. Right. But if I ask you this question, I don't give you the solution and you find the solution is yes or no, that uh, seems like brute force. So, in some sense, these things, if I put the computational hat on, there's always a way to do it in a brute force manner. I just go over all possibilities and then I'll choose the one that uh, is the shortest. But cognitive not. resources are limited. But cognitive, uh, yes. So so the question is, if I can verify fast, mm -hmm. and here fast is just, uh, you have to agree on some notion of time. It's called polynomial time, polynomial the size of the graph. Sure. Can you also find it fast? And the belief is, and this is where people tongue-in-cheek bring in creativity. So you need creativity to come up with the solution. And we don't expect that you can find these solutions as fast as checking them. Mm. And that's uh, what people believe that P is not equal to NP. Mm. Now, this is a very different way of thinking about creativity. In mm. fact, it's probably arguable if, if this is uh, at all in this model of uh, the three models that Arno talked about. Right, right, right. 
And Anita, when we'll, we'll, we'll again get back to some of these questions here, Deep Sea, as you think of intelligent systems, and you know, it's, it's, it's such an interesting nomenclature, uh, does, does creative have a special meaning for you as you think of it using ideas of complex systems or other, other kind of systemic ideas? What is it for you? Um, and how does it differ or, uh, or how is it similar to some of the notions that we've opened up here so far? Yeah. Can I actually focus on exactly the second part of what you said? Because sure. I was buzzing as both of sure. these speakers uh, were talking. So let me start with, um, in order of uh, what, what Arna said. Sure. Um, when he talked about musicians uh-huh. uh, who, say, who talk about this process of flow, uh-huh. And when he also talked about the first process, which is one where, you know, you are f- task-focused. And I wanted to be a little bit bolshy and say, you know, there's actually subcategories to that too. Because, for example, as a musician, uh-huh. uh, I am in the state of flow only during a performance. Not, not What indeed. leads up to it. I mean, the performance is really the finished picture. Okay? But the state of flow there certainly is decomposable into two of your earlier processes. One is the task-driven process where I have to make sure that I'm technically competent to play what the music demands. And the other is, this is the part which is the second, closest to the dream state. I have to understand in a way that is not clear to me as a physicist what that means for me in the space of emotion, in the space of memory. And it's a combination of those, because if I just were to play something flat, it wouldn't, it wouldn't mean anything. And are you contrasting it with the process of composition, Anita? Is it I'm possible? Not even, I, yeah. I want to go, yeah, go there later, but sure. I just want to sort of hit these three things one by one. So just to say that the process of flow, at least when it's a musical performance, mm-hmm. is driven by two of the earlier processes, where there's quite a lot of this, this, this process of recollection, of memory, of emotion, of uh, you know, input which is not just task-driven, as well as a lot of task-driven input. Uh, and so, so in a sense, at least as far as that example is concerned, flow can be further subcategorized in, as the output of something which relies quite heavily on the two. And I make this point because, and I, this is just a quick digression, I make this point because lots of people associate conventionally creative processes and imagination with the arts right. and task-driven calculations of the sciences. And one of the things that I've always believed in is that there's a bit of magic in both. And so that brings me to your second point, which is that of the, the, the driven solution. I mean, as a scientist, which all of us have experienced, I could be focusing consciously on a problem you know, uh, f- for a long time. And it's necessary. I need to hibernate in that. I need to immerse myself in that. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, quite simply, and for reasons I cannot explain, I get the answer in the morning. It's not, that part of the last solution is not, it's probably driven by immersion. But then there's that quick leap into something. And I want to come back to the neural net story here in a minute. But before I do that, I just want to digress very quickly and go to Deep Sea's point about um, PNP. About, about PNP. And there, one of the things that we've worked on as physicists is, uh, we're way behind you in, 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 in all of many of these issues in theoretical computer science. So one of the things that physicists like us are cheats, okay? So we want to do less work and get the answer fast. And so one of the subjects that's now emerging in the sorts of things I do 
is optimization. And optimization means you may not get the perfect answer, but how close can you get to it? Right. Okay. And with what sort of search tools? And the, the creativity there, if you like, is in the process of search. Because clearly, if you just do, you know, uh, an infinite search, it's no good. If you also do an irrelevant search, it's no good. I mean, you could be searching there and your answer is there. Yeah. But then it, the real creativity is, if you like, in the process of what is your search algorithm, provided you don't want to get the full solution. And so the last thing I wanted to say, which is on this business of the leap beyond, which mm. is the thing that, that, that we all associate with creativity. One of the questions I have to put to you is that as physicists have done their own neural networks, and maybe these are not even nearly as good as they should be, but at least my experience has been when I've worked with neural nets, uh, that they're huge pieces of machinery, but at the end of the day, they deserve, I mean, they, they learn from some kind of a master. And if you like, if I now come to your question about how do I compose a piece of music, mm. okay, then somehow the first time that a composer like Schoenberg heard tonality in something that was atonal and could write a piece like Transfigured Night, he went beyond anything any neural network could have taught him. I'm not sure if that's daydreaming. I'm not sure how a neural net would do that. So there is this je ne sais quoi associated with something else, which I don't know if neural nets which rely on a learned algorithm can get, but then you guys are the experts there. So that's no, but I think, you know, you used, um, and you know, there are lots of questions there, you used notions of search, notions mm -hmm. of optimization, and, and both of these are in some sense computational problems, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. But are they are they very distinct? These And, and can, can they coexist similarly? Is there any way of pushing that envelope further? Once again, I, I don't, I'm not sure you said optimization. Did you mean approximation where you don't get exact but in you're physics, close enough? In physics, we, we call it the process of optimization where for a given distance from the real solution, yeah. we, ha we find the fastest way of getting there. So that's the technical name that okay. physicists use. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so It's a process of creative search, if you like, which gets you further, not right. to the exact place. Yeah. So in, 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 in TCS, there is this notion of, which is close enough, it's called of approximation algorithms, which mm -hmm. says, yeah, I, you're saying that I cannot find the exact solution, but you know, maybe you don't want that. Can you come close, exactly what you, uh, Anita said, can you come close enough in reasonable amount of time. But how do you do that? Do you start with a plug? Do you start with a input variable and then oh, then go uh, from there? Well What's you, the process? So, so there are two questions here. One is uh, the question of a notion and the other is the question of how do we design that. So the question of the notion is very similar and uh, basically if you cannot get exactly very fast, can you get approximately very fast? How you design the algorithms, uh, as a human being, as an algorithm designer, that's often a very creative process. And very much what like Arno said, first you try the all the things, all the tools that you know, you throw at that. They don't work. That's when the things get interesting. And then what works, uh, there is no recipe for that. But if it works, I can check it, it works. And that's fine. I think the question is, how do you characterize, in this case, approximation algorithms? Is there oh, a way of that's saying... Or is that too vast and hazy? No, 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 it's very simple. For example, going back to the problem that I said, the traveling salesman problem, you ask, is there a tour which is at most 1,000 kilometers? I say, I don't know, but I know there's one at most 2,000 kilometers. That's right. a factor two approximation. Right. There's a notion of as good as approximation as you want, which is like, I can give you within 1,001, but I'll take more time 
depending on your factor. So that that's the notion. But I guess that's not uh, that interesting. I How think my do you question in a sense is that you start with a guess and then verify that and gradually get to the solution. I'm trying to get to the mechanics of it. No, uh, uh, so you're, you're asking Again, as an, al- as an algorithm designer, what do you do when you come with a problem? No, my question is, what does the algorithm do? Not what the algorithm designer is. That's, a, that's a good question. Uh, more often than not, mm-hmm. the algorithm basically hedges its bets mm-hmm. and says, listen, uh, this is such a hard problem. Mm-hmm. I probably cannot get it. So if I can get within, say, factor two or factor whatever, mm-hmm. X, that opens up the doors of my quote unquote creativity I can be I can I can search over a sl- slightly more space and that gives me more wiggle room and to become faster so more often than not that's what an algorithm does so again I'll give you a concrete example sure for example uh, suppose I want to find uh, I'm given a system of uh, equations and I want to figure out uh, whether there is a assignment of uh, variables which satisfy the solution sure this is a hard problem in general. But if I say, well, listen, if you don't give the variables zero or one values, but something between zero and one, mm-hmm. the problem often becomes easier. Mm-hmm. So that's already an approximation because what I'm going to get is not going to be the exact solution, but those things I can solve. Right. I'm meaning we know how to, how to solve those things. So that's often the way these kinds of approximate algorithms function. Right. By... By r- relaxing your solution space, you're allowed to be more uh, agile and more creative and faster that way. Right, right. But again, these are probably very different from how the mind works. No, not at all. Yeah. Not how, at all. how does the mind work? Are there notions of heuristics, guesswork? Well, we, we, uh, we characterize really... Uh, you you the... feel comfortable with the notion of the mind or you prefer the, the word brain? Uh, same thing. Same you thing. tell me what the difference is. I don't know. I'm asking you. Uh, no difference <laughs> to me. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, for any materialist, really. Sure. <laughs> um, but we we conceptualize it the same way. We uh, creativity is defined as an uh, as you stand in the middle of an unknown solution space. So you have a problem, but you don't have a solution. So whatever your algorithm does, and your neural networks run algorithms. Uh, they are no different in that right. sense, is that another way to characterize the two first types of creativity in terms of their heuristics, how directional they are. Yeah? Right. And the first one where you consciously throw all the cognitive toolbox of your higher cognitive functions in the frontal cortex onto a problem, the more directional is your search space. Yeah? The solutions what do you mean by direction, Yaran? Directional is is that you have a, a much more uh, of an expectation of where in the solution space you might encounter a solution. Okay, so you have a solution and you have a, a very narrow solution space. It is in this direction, and if in fact your solution is in this direction, the deliberate mode will find it in short order. And the way right. it does this, in fact, is by an evolutionary algorithm. Because even within that solution space, you need to do a variation test. Every time you do a variation test, it can be described as an evolutionary algorithm. The problem is that when in that unknown solution space, your solution is actually in left field. And you don't know that ahead of time, otherwise it yes. would be a known solution. Yeah? <laughs> Only then you get frustrated. 
And that happens very often if the solution is unconventional and does not fit your mindset, your mind view, your worldview. Right. And then daydreaming works. So you go to the second type and you can characterize the second type by simply unconscious processes, which are less directional. That means they have a wider search space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there you might include the solution into the search space, which your first type of creativity mode didn't. Mm -hmm. Okay, And then uh, when you do have the solution in there, it might in a neural network be solidified, amplified, uh, have uh, an oscillation that is strong enough for it to be catapulted into consciousness. But these search spaces run unconsciously. Why? Why do they run unconsciously? They run unconsciously. That's a computational. Anyway, these are computational problems. But that is because uh, your deliberate mode that engages your consciousness, your attentional system mm -hmm. is computationally enormously costly. Mm -hmm. You cannot focus on much of the solution space. Just like in perception, you cannot take in more than a, s a very small part of the bombardment of the senses that come in. Right. So you have a filtering system. But therefore, you can treat that with much more in-depth knowledge. And you have, of course, the much older, phylogenetically much older system of an unconscious system, which we share with most of our animal, especially our close cousins, uh, sure. chimpanzees and shrimp. They they um, have also this unconscious, these unconscious processes, and they rely on um, cognitive tools that are not as highly evolved, and they are computationally less costly. Now, the disadvantage. Um, um, is the computational cost. But the advantage is that you widen the solution space. Yeah. yeah. And does the brain know ahead of time when it's before it's going to transition from unconscious to conscious? No, does that, it know that a solution is nearby? A no, bit ahead I don't of think time? so. I don't think so. It's a, it's a thing about the attentional system. Mm -hmm. The attentional system has very clear and, and, and very obvious limits. Mm -hmm. You can pay attention to something only for so long. Right. And in fact, we're the only animal that can pay attention to a non-biologically irrelevant stimulus. Mm. You try to get a chimpanzee into an opera. And that uh, will sooner or later go. And as soon as it goes, you essentially incubate. We call it incubation. You incubate the problem. That means you it's not on your off your mind. Right. What it is, you degrade it from the spotlight of consciousness into networks that do not have mm. that kind of computational cost. Mm. Mm. But there it reverberates and continues. Mm. And that's the incubation part. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So this is very like... When we physicists do this stochastic, this optimization, we have a component of stochasticity. Mm -hmm. So basically what we do is we say, um, and I'll give you a concrete example later, but I think in response to your question of how do these algorithms work, you have a solution space. And then common sense, if you like, says you narrow your solution space round to this. Right. Of course, the solution could be in left field. Okay, But you do that. And then you have the variational principles. So you take a bunch of solutions and you say, okay, well, you know, we'll keep the 10 best ones. Right. But we won't chuck out the next 10 ones. We'll still keep them just in case. Right. And then we'll chuck out the rest. And you keep doing this. And then the addition of stochasticity means that if you are, if you were going, let's say, in this direction, stochasticity is a sudden jump, which can go in any direction, any part. Which, which will take you somewhere else. And then the hope is that some of the things you had downgraded 
with the addition of this, they may, get to be able up. To, may be able to come and capture the one thing that was in left field. And so coming to how one chooses this algorithm, again, we are poor relations of computer scientists, but I would still say that, you know, the way in which we do this is that we do, we work by the power of analogy. And I want to give an example which involves computer science. Mm -hmm. So in fact, there's a colleague of mine at Harvard, Stuart Sheba, whose name you might have heard of. Um, he heard me giving my talk on sand piles, which is what I worked on then to do with the roles of grains and clusters. Sure. And he saw that and he said, oh, he said, you have, and he picked out what was relevant for him. He said, you have global, which is collective and local mechanisms of relaxation. Mm -hmm. I have a problem where I want to prove that the algorithm which works best is a mix of these two. It's not directional. It's not fully stochastic. Mm. It's a bit of this and a bit of that. So mm. he set us thinking about something which eventually led us to a way of saying... Once we change the landscape, the mathematical landscape in which the earlier problem was defined, we were able to just by analogy use some similar tools to solve the problem. So some of this was entirely unconscious in your words or creative in those words because we had no idea where we were going. We had a task, but we ourselves didn't have the insight to go after insight. Right. But the, the, the equivalent of these subconscious processes, I guess, is what one tries to model with stochasticity. So, No, that's beautiful. Why are we able to do analogical reasoning? How, how are we able to do it? Why does it work? Can computer systems do analogical reasoning? Uh, so before I, I yeah. go to that, I want to actually say something which is very striking, which Arno said. Yeah. Uh, so you to paraphrase you again, uh, you said the unconscious mind once it stumbles on the solution, it it just sort of jumps back to consciousness, which means that the unconscious mind, when it encounters the solution, can verify the solution very Correct. fast. So the verification happens in the unconscious state itself. Yeah, the verification oh. task seems to be a or quote something... unquote simple. Again, the, the, way, the way we think about this, perhaps even with uh, an addition of uh, using uh, Bayesian inferencing, uh, because you have a certain target. Yeah. Yeah? And uh, once um, that's the difference between our creativity and biological creativity, because the evolutionary algorithms in biology is uh, very creative. Uh, your body plan is very creative. A lot of engineering solutions to very tricky uh, environmental problems. Uh, but it does so blindly. The evolutionary algorithm is famously blind. That's not the case with us. We can, um, because we can represent the world, we can simulate outcomes, and that means we can have targets. And we have ideas about how the target looks like. Uh, it has to have certain functions, let's say a building, an architecture. It has to fulfill certain functions. Now, you have a network that uh, tests evolutionary um, uh, algorithm-wise the, the various solutions. But when it hits the solution, what I mean by hit the solution, if it hits one of the solutions or get close to it, then uh, that particular solution will be computed in that network, perhaps at a faster speed. And that faster speed can be a signal, for instance, for dopaminergic strengthening of that circuit, which then strengthens further, which then may um, sort of elbow its way to consciousness simply because it has an oscillation in a network that competes with another network. It has an oscillation and a stability of, let's say, millions of neurons uh, oscillating um, at the same, at, in the same way, in the same phase, that they will force itself to consciousness. And that, that is the moment, the harm moment. And uh, yes, you will have um, 
a verification process in that sense. Yeah. For instance, uh, nature doesn't do it that way. Uh, are obviously. these frequencies different, Arno, in mm. the unconscious, subconscious, and the conscious states? Uh, uh, we don't know. In terms of the oscillation that we have, yeah. and uh, in terms of uh, hertz, we have everything from very her- low hertz signals of delta and theta to, uh, of course, gamma. Sure. Um, uh, but it is not quite clear in the neuroscience which one is associated with a sort of a high effect or inside effect. We also don't know the uh, physical or physiological parameters for the stability of a network, whether it involves number of neurons, whether it involves a certain neurotransmitter. Uh, the understanding of how that works at the level of the brain in terms of networks is, is not very well understood at all. I think one very interesting question that Deep Sea was kind of alluding to, or at least the way I articulate it, is that where does verification happen? Does it happen in the unconscious processes or does it happen in the conscious processes because you can somehow upgrade something both. to the conscious state and then reject both. it and it goes falls back both 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 and both so you can have variation processes and selection processes both at the level of deliberate consciousness or deliberate creativity and spontaneous creativity mm-hmm. obviously if you have the inside event you have a variation and a selection process Mm-hmm. at the unconscious level, at the implicit level or at the unconscious explicit level. And are but these of course, spontaneous and deliberate uh, processes totally non-overlapping? Or? No, they are overlapping and this is also a very fascinating area of research mm. within the cognitive neurosciences. But of course you can have the possibility that you you have at the unconscious level um, done some verification process that already allows you an inside event and then when you check it more closely with all of the toolbox of your deliberate system you see it doesn't work out. But it can already be worked out to its full extent at the unconscious level. We know that. That's the whole point of an inside event. But you also have variation selection and verification processes completely at the level of consciousness where you just... Um, methodically figure out a solution. Which is the first type of creativity we were talking about Uh, earlier. Edison, Thomas Alva Edison is a very good example of having sort of exhaustive searches, deliberately, consciously figuring out all details. Yeah, workman-like creativity. 1,093 patents, still the record. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The whole uh, description sounded like something, a kind of algorithm which I think physicists use a lot, which is like simulated annealing, right? So... the directed annealing. Yeah, annealing. So the directed search seems like you're doing some gradient descent, and if it were all, you come to a local minimum, if that was the solution, boom, you got it. Right. Otherwise, you just search, which is, I think, in the term, I, as an I'm not an expert on this, but if you heat up the system, you go up to a different you zone up and system, search up there. You, you have more random events. That's, That's exactly. Yeah. But is it really... That's interesting. That random? What do you mean by that? So the random? unconscious is it like completely at random? No, no, not at all. So not how all. is there? Is there? Is there? But a, there's an optimal temperature also for simulated That's annealing. true. But but is there a because there are randomized algorithms and the randomness is used in very clever ways. Mm-hmm. So is there a notion in which we understand how the un- unconscious? Uh, the unconscious searches in the search space, so to speak. I'm sort of paraphrasing no, I think, in my job. I think the interesting notion there is one of temperature. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, we are trying yeah. to use it in an so analogical annealing, sense. Annealing, for example, is a, or simulation annealing are things which are done with a controlled degree of randomness. Because mm-hmm. obviously, if you had infinite temperature, you mm-hmm. would mean every event being included, right? right. Uh, uh, and if you have zero temperature, it means no uh, uh, external events being included. But uh, simulated annealing is you have to to learn 
or you have to come upon, and I use these words because sure, they reflect sure. two processes, uh, the optimal temperature at which your source uh, can be carried out. And even then, sometimes what can happen is you can have what we physicists work with a lot, which is rugged landscapes. Mm -hmm. So you can actually have something which looks plain and you think it only has one minimum, and that's the global minimum, and you do that, and you go there, and you think that's your solution. And then you find that that is rugged, and it takes you... There, it's it's many, many steep minima, which can be within each other. So to reach the global minimum, every time you think you've hit rock bottom, you haven't. So that's when you have to de devise things which are even cleverer than simulated leaning, because these days people are trying to figure out what to do with these extremely rough landscapes. But it's always a way of balancing sort of your first mechanism, which is, you know, variational search with the amount of optimization needed. I'll give you a very simple example. If you're at the bottom of a well, which is shallow, sure. okay, you don't need to take a huge jump, sure. okay, to, to, to cross it. But, but if you are at, at a really deep minimum, and yet you know there's an even deeper one, you really need to have rather higher temperatures yeah, than you might deep, need. you you need energy to come out too. So. Uh, but the thing is, yeah. if you think you're at you're a minimum, but you know that you're not at the global minimum, you will probably need a huge amount of randomness yeah. to get out of that well and to fall into the even uh, deeper one. The trouble is with all these things, we have no idea of the structure of the landscape. We never really know if we found our solution, at least in many of these problems that physicists are concerned with. The... So there is the, no such thing as an optimal temperature. That's all I'm saying for the really complex problems. The topography of the landscape, by definition, creativity happens in an unknown solution space. So you don't know the topography. You don't know how many minima or maxima that solution space contains. You can walk up a ramp uh, just to invert this because we're not looking for minima here. We're looking for <laughs> maxima here. Yeah? Uh, you go up a ramp and you don't know that that gets you on the top of the mountain. First of all, there is no mountain, one mountain, one top. Yeah? There's no organizational summit. And this is also how you can characterize the creativity within the sciences and the arts. Because um, in the sciences, the landscape is much more defined. There mm -hmm. are functional criteria that... that, that that, that, that define a creative solution. In the arts, the landscape is much more amorphous. You have even less organizational uh, summits. Uh, you have more than one way to go up the same mountains. You have more than one way to go up a ramp. Right. And so you can characterize this also in terms of topography. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the best way to do this in a solution space. Now you have an algorithm that runs it, uh, that runs wild through this. The algorithm has certain parameters. And what we're dealing here with the two different cognitive systems, we can describe them computationally uh, simply by describing the different kinds of algorithms, multiple algorithms for each system that runs this unknown solution space. And as you make your moves in solution space, you will encounter things. And when you go up or to a minima, you go down, you find things, some of them work, and we consider that creativity in a sense, or also problem solving, in a sense that this is has the criteria of creativity. There are three criteria for a product of creativity. One, it has to be novel, obviously, mm -hmm. otherwise it wouldn't be creative. Yeah, If it has been there before, it's not creative. Sure. The second is that it has to be functional. Even in the arts, um, your sense of beauty, our fitness functions uh, of uh, in criteria in a sense. And three, which a lot of people don't agree on when they hear it the first time, but we in the, in the field of creativity all agree on the third criteria, and that is it has to be surprising. <laughs> very, very often you can see a solution that is novel, that is functional, 
and you go like, oh, that, no, that's not creative. That doesn't surprise me. You have to be stunned. And then you say, oh, yeah, that is clever. That is creative. That is the sort of a common sense notion. Not everybody agrees But with this. But it's a subjective notion. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That, uh, they're, they're, we are very clear about that this uh, is a very <laughs> unsatisfactory definition. Mm. And it's not only subjective. Can you measure it? Mm. Yeah. That's and also, can you measure it in a, a sort of repeatable way across many samples? Well, what, what the, it depends on is your expectation effects. We have a certain worldview. Let's take, you know, physicists. Well, let's take 500 years back, we go uh, to, to so, Galileo. So that's right. So surprises yeah. linked to the expectation Absolutely. set at any moment And your worldview. For instance, um, they would have been very, very surprised by Newtonian physics. We are no longer surprised by Newtonian physics. Right, right. So your expectation, that, and that it brings also in other levels outside the brain. That brings, well, they're still represented in the brain, but it brings in levels of culture. It brings in levels of history, of interactions on a social uh, communities, um, of what is considered creativity um, and what is not. But isn't that also a question of time scale? Because, you know, uh, people who were rather close, who are rather close to the latest piece of creative innovation in some field, may be less surprised than someone, you know, 100 years ago who said, oh, there will one day be robots doing your housework. So, so I think there is a time scale story here. So surprise, to me, the thing that worries me, it's not quantifiable and it depends on how far away you are from the picture. Uh, we, we are all clear that this is not quantifiable. But uh, if <laughs> we... Arne has only qualified that. Then if it's, we, it's if we leave this out, yeah. um, most people would not agree on a definition of creativity only with these two criteria. Mm. Yeah? Mm. Um, that is not to say that we all agree on this, but we... Uh, the US, I agree we need the third. The, the, the US third, Patent yeah. and Trademark mm. Office mm. made this very clear. They define, they only give you a patent... If it's surprising. If it, is an, <laughs> if it contains what they call a non-obvious step. Yeah? Mm. Uh, which means it's sort of not a linear progress of a solution. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, that I agree, but that means it's innovative. It doesn't have to be surprising. I'm only, I, I'm talking semantics here. So something yeah. which has not been known before <laughs> is a non-obvious step. It's an, it's an essential of creativity. But that doesn't mean that it will necessarily come as a surprise. If somebody tells me tomorrow four, four robots will be doing this, I'll say, oh, it's conceivable, it's possible. But well, when it happens, it'll be, of course, a huge Well, so in, in 2005, uh, on January 25th, which is now almost 12 years ago, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office gave the first patent ever to a machine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that particular <laughs> event, I think, should you should feel in the marrow of your bones mm. because it goes into uh, artificial intelligence mm. or artificial creativity and, in fact, machine creativity. And I see machine creativity uh, no different to what we do. We are machines, so what we produce is machine creativity to me. Yeah? And it was an evolutionary algorithm. And it solved it by doing a non-obvious step. Otherwise, it wouldn't have gotten the patent. Sure, sure. The non-obvious, I agree with. But I was going to but say, it can done by but, but what you said was very interesting, which is you said you think we are sort of machines as well. Do you think Beethoven could is have machine, been regarded a particularly as a talented, particularly machine. talented machine? Yeah. You do. Okay. Unless you have some heavenly goo in your head, which I don't no, know no, no, about, no. you are entirely no, no. a materialistic I, I machine. Guess, I guess I'm going towards Gerd uh, Lescherbach here. I always believe that there is something that is unknowable. And my belief is that that je ne sais quoi about what is it that constitutes a leap of genius is something that is as yet unknown. 
It is explicable, but not as yet. And maybe it will remain unknowable for a while. I don't know. Uh, it's just I a philosophy. I, I guess so long as you say for a while, I'll never let it be. Exactly. <laughs> but I haven't defined what I meant by while. Yeah. <laughs> That's my get out clause. No, I think you know, there's an interesting term there, non-linear, right? So what are what are non-linear algorithms? Are they non-linear algorithms which... How do, you, how do you produce insight? How do you produce non-obvious steps? How do you produce spontaneous algorithms? Is there a way of thinking about this computation in deep sea? We're going back to that again and again. Um... So, I don't know what exactly non-linear means. Non-linear means different to different things. So, linear is generally easy, right? As yeah. in, for example, if you go down a ramp, you sure. reach the non-linear. And especially non-convex is where things get rugged, as you so, so as to speak. Uh, what do you mean by non-convex? So, convex is like a bowl, right? When you yeah. go down, sure. there will be one. And if you... If you, you go if towards you, a stable equilibrium. If you, if you, if you cross it, you again come down. Sure. Non-convex are those trenches and all that. Things. Sure. But those are figurative uh, things. Sure. I don't know if there's anything called a non-linear algorithm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are very sophisticated, creative or surprising algorithms mm-hmm. out there, which... Uh, can, can algorithms discover theorems? Discover. Yes. Not when they... Uh, yes, yes. They can discover theorems. When they're set theorems. up to or even otherwise. So here, here's yeah. how you... I, I will, so, so let's see. Uh, I can... I think I think I think to sort of underscore the three points. It's uh, I can dis- algorithms can discover novel theorems which no one knows before. Very simple. How do you do that? You have a bunch of axioms, and you just uh, make it into various combinations. And I'll come up with a statement that no one, it was never stated before. But that's brute force in a sense. Uh, n- no, as in but so, so no no no. It's a it's a bunch of axioms which have combined in a way. That has never been combined before. Sure. And that will give a statement which is novel. It will be completely, most probably, useless. Or what was the word you used? The second thing was... Functional, functional useful, all terms Absolutely were. unfunctional. But it could be surprising. Yeah. So whether an algorithm can come up with all those three things uh, in a decidable fashion in a very consistent fashion is something which I don't know and this is what I think is referred to as artificial creativity yeah but uh, but but it's definitely easy to come up with uh, statements or theorems which are uh, not known before yeah easy yes very easy very easy for example I'll tell you something which is going on uh, uh, I can say plug-in plugs right Microsoft there's a guy who's making uh, exam questions Mm-hmm. Like geometric constructions, construct this circle which is inside a triangle, you know, these kinds of questions mm-hmm. by a computer. A computer makes all these questions, mm-hmm. which are, again, novel mm-hmm. because they they, you, don't, you, can, you can go over all the textbooks, they're not there. They're useful, they're being used in uh, exams. Mm-hmm. Maybe not that surprising. So, uh, maybe, maybe... One would probably not put that under the header of creativity. Why not? As in, if 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 the if the <laughs> I do, if, and the, I would. if the uh, exercise was yeah. also very surprising, it was a theorem that was completely out of the blue, or beautiful. I think surprise beauty is all sort of. But wouldn't that depend slightly on the way the computer does it? Uh, in the sense that if it's just by what he he was referring to as brute force, which is searching every possibility and combining every possibility, it's not particularly creative. Well, but if there's a way in which they're taking a bunch of those statements and uh, questions or something and coming up with something that would have been much harder to arrive at just by thinking about it, then yes. 
No, maybe that's the way our brain does it. Whenever, you know, when when uh, the Fermat's last theorem was proven, whatever went in the brain, well, it's not a bunch of stuff like 10 or 15, but, you know, the final theorem is just, you know, a logical step-after-step thing, and maybe it was done by combining various things in your head, but when it is, when the when the mechanism is not known to you, it feels surprising, and it feels aha. But when you tell them, maybe it's not that exciting. I don't. So that's the part which is not clear. I think, and brute force can yeah. also be very creative. Well, no, I don't. I think that's. Why do you I say guess, that? Yeah. Uh, all of nature is brute force, pretty much. Biology searches any solution space by brute force. The evolutionary algorithms has very little heuristics in it. Of course, it's defined by our genetic space. Yeah, but very much so. And uh, essentially, uh, if you were to be plugged into a different planet with different organisms, you would think, oh, that looks creative. You have three noses or whatever they have as a detection mechanism. Yeah? Right. And so if an alien came in here, they would find us very creative solutions to problems. And it was all done essentially by brute force without right. any what we call foresight. There's no foresight in biology. So the algorithm that, uh, this, that walks through the landscape can be a brute one. It's not a very particularly efficient one because you need to test out all the possibilities, but it can arrive at very creative, novel, and functional things. I guess, I don't know, personally, I think that, maybe, again, this is just semantics, but uh, personally, I think that anything that can be done by sifting through an infinite amount of material versus something that comes even close to that solution, but using some clever trick, you know, maybe stochasticity, maybe some kind of clever variational principle. If I had the same solutions, one generated by, you know, this sort of brute force method and one which was done by a little twist of something, you know, which took you a little bit left field to yeah. find it, I would tend personally to say that the second was creative. But yeah, it yeah, I think it's very common. I think most people would think so, but we don't think so. Mm -hmm. uh, because we look at primarily the product. When we mm. talk about creativity, we talk about products, really. When we talk not about the process. The, well, the process. we talk about the process, too. But the process can be of very different types to arrive at the product. And I think most of uh, people would agree if it is linear, in the sense of it is logical, it is um, if you can derive at it with, an, with obvious steps like, for instance, a brute search algorithm. We don't call it creative. But that's not how we think of this. That is also why we don't make the categorical distinction, categorical here, between mere problem-solving and creativity. One being wild, and the other one being very logical. A mathematician and engineers do that. But I'm an artist. I'm creative. No. Um, that, that, I think, is an exaggeration. What I just yeah. said is an exaggeration yeah. of yeah. the same yeah. sort of thing. Um, the, the, the algorithm can be of many many different types and kinds, including a brute one. It's just not very efficient. So, for instance, when you look at cultural evolution, what we have done with our brains in the last 4,000 years or 10,000 years until we, uh, from when right. we invented the plow to we are sitting here in a room high of telecommunication, yeah, evolution maybe needs millions of years to come up with all of these solutions because we don't run brute force algorithms. Yeah. We do it with heuristics. Yeah. And that is what makes us such more creative force than when we run our creativity on DNA. Uh, nature does run it on DNA, uh, shuffling DNA. We run it on neural networks. And the main difference but is this, the, the like cleverness that. of the algorithm. Is creativity domain-specific? Um, there is a and big so, within the field of creativity. This is a huge upon debate. Ideas of processes, product, and you've said you, you've kind of said that you would say whether something is creative or not depending on the product. This is a gigantic debate um, mm. that is 
as old as the field of creativity itself. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'd say at least 50 years mm -hmm. of domain specificity, mm -hmm. of whether you can be creative in more than one domain and at what level. Right. And most people, most people at this point have come down on domain specificity. In order to push the envelope and really walk into unknown solution spaces, you have to know where the edge is. You have to get to the edge in the first place. Right. And there's so much knowledge you have to have to get to the edge that I cannot make a creative contribution in physics or in computer science. Right. Simply, I don't know enough. Yeah? Right. In order to go truly in an unknown solution space, I would even know what that looks like and right. when I'm encountering it. Right. And if I were to do this, I would have to first acquire that knowledge. That takes me 15, 20 years. And by that time, I'll be dead. So I can probably can only do one thing. Now, there are a couple of people. You're saying that, in a way it has to do with um, the average lifespans that we... In, a, in a way, the, a little bit. The productive think, yeah. age and lifetime. But also so. as you grow older, your frontal cortex and your brain becomes less nimble, less flexible. Fles flexible in order to uh, accommodate knowledge. Mm -hmm. But for instance, if you're also a musician, yeah, for instance, and you do both streams, you're a physicist and you're musicians, there are some examples of contributions that are truly innovative, creative, and people have recognized it as such of one person in two different domains. But they are so rare right. that most people think the main specificity uh, constrains the kind of creativity that you as a person can contribute to. It's really only in your domain. We have what is called a 10-year rule. Even people like uh, Beethoven or uh, Schubert or uh, if you take uh, physicist, chemist, Marie Curie, anybody, um, need approximately, as an average, uh, on a bell curve, sure. um, 10 years to truly make a contribution that will last um, the test of time. to have some lasting yeah, value. Yeah, right, test of right. time. Um, there are some exceptions. Uh, people that are a bit earlier, uh, particularly physicists and mathematicians are known for that. Uh, it's the only field mathematics where you can get a, a, the biggest medal and you have to be less than 40. Yeah? <laughs> I don't know of any other science that does that. Yeah? But, um, and historians are later. They uh, do it when they're in their 60s. But in this 10-year rule applies even for sports, even in performing arts, um, as a general rule. And that is why most people have sort of come down on uh, in favor of domain specificity within the field of creativity. Mm -hmm. And if we had to, going back to the other question, Deep Sea, that we were on a while ago, I think, you know, Arne has used the definition of those three tests we're talking about. But if we didn't know about that and we had to kind of take a shot at defining what a creative product would be, is there a way of articulating that computationally or algorithmically? So let me answer your question with the uh, with the sort of the example that Anita pointed out. Mm. And it makes me wonder mm. if there should be a fourth thing in the definition of creativity, mm -hmm. which is efficiency. 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 So one of the reasons it's kind why... kind of linked to the brute force point. Yes, why you might not like a brute force search to one of those clever ways might be efficiency because a brute force search all said and done might take a tremendous amount of time. But if you're quote-unquote clever enough, you can do faster. Uh, so that's, uh, that's also... can uh, The 10-year rule, if you're more efficient, can that go down? Which brings to this also this artificial creativity, right? They don't have a quote-unquote time span. Mm. So, but but we know that brute force search is not the uh, 
sought after algorithms for most of the computational mm-hmm. processes around exactly. the world. Right. So there is something else, and I think efficiency might be one of the one of the things. But I'm not sure if the brain so can. You are how would you? Notions uh, of complexity, the Kolmogorov idea, things of that nature. No efficiency. I mean, just the 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 the, the speed. The so so. How would that play out in the arts? How why, how would that make sense? The word efficiency. I think most artists would bark at this. I mean, we as scientists, we understand it. We understand Anita's example very well, and we would intuitively all agree with it. But for instance, in the arts, I said, what does efficiency have to do with my painting? I take as much time as I so want. Here's, so I'll give you, uh, maybe this is a way one can explain it, that if I were now to say, well, I'm going to you know, learn the piano, and I'm going to go over all the, like, like the monkey on the keyboard example, right? Yeah. A monkey on the keyboard can produce Shakespeare if he lives long enough. You mean k- keyboard? Typewriter. A typewriter, yeah. sorry, yeah. A computer keyboard. <laughs> yeah, so, but, and that is true, right? There is a uh, one in 10 to the power 100 chance that he will create it, but there, there it's, a, it's a positive number. And so if he lo- lived long enough, which is, of, of course, absurd, he will create it. But that's not creative. There has to be an efficient way. Shakespeare didn't live that long, and, uh, you know, Beethoven didn't live that long. But so, I think also and that's, a, that's yeah. also, sorry, uh, no, no, sorry. the artist should uh, appreciate that mm. the speed at which mm. you can pick up and i think also there's a there's a probably a slightly different slight difference between uh the processes in in science and the arts they're still creative but i mean a lot of things as you pointed out to begin with in science are search based solutions you know, search based processes you want to find a solution in art you don't really want to find a solution <laughs> You want to find, you know, you want to do something which expresses something, whether you're performing or whether you're you're composing, and you have an idea that you're pursuing, but there is no solution out there. Okay, and so, that's so, a semantics. They, uh, you use a different word, but it's still a search process. Well, no one, know, yes no one no. really. Uh, yes and no. Except that, except, that, except that I, I'm not sure. If, let's say, the algorithmic processes that I'm talking about, you know, variational, would I, would I do the same thing? Would I say, let's take 10 different melodies and keep another 10 ones and then just put a few sharps and flats there to get an ideal melody? I'm not sure. I'm sure it's search in the broadest sense, but I'm not sure it works in quite the same way because whereas with a computer-based solution or an analytical solution, you know roughly your search space, roughly the solution you want. You also know that deviating cleverly from it by using high temperatures will get you into left field. In the arts, sometimes you have that aha moment when you think, Wow, I, I mean, I have finally not okay. I've got, I've got the stuff under my skin. You know, I've got, I can play that. That's that's the easy part. But how can I translate my emotions into this piece that I'm playing? And you know, that's that's an aha moment which I find much harder to characterize in terms of search. It's not like I'm looking at neighboring solutions and saying, okay, if I have you, a, I think Arne would say that you're probably probably doing it subconsciously. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm absolutely. not, I'm not even sure of that. I'm not yeah. even sure of that because, because in science, because in, you, science, in, science yeah. in science, I would say, you know, these are close solutions. I'll reject this. I'll accept that. In in the arts, it's, it's like if I want to sort of think of how I would play a phrase, Mm. I don't go through a search space of all phrases. Consciously. I actually, yeah, well, That's the only way we can really well, I don't know. characterize I don't know. it. I don't know. Eventually, I I'm, I'm talking about yeah. the mechanics of it, so I don't sure. know what I'm doing. But I'm just sure. saying that mechanically what I'm doing is sometimes I can play a phrase 20 times and it still doesn't work. And not until I've had the, this is what I call the daydreaming aspect, that I've had a chance to withdraw into myself and say, this is how the whole should sound. 
And you will say that that's because there's this yeah, yeah, long term. Yeah. Maybe yeah. the way in which I would define it then, if one has to be very specific, is perhaps many of the solutions in science relate more to local searches than mm. many of the art solutions, which have a bigger component of what I loosely call global. Well, I think the better way to look at it is that, uh, as I said, the search, uh, the topography is more amorphic. Hmm. Uh, yeah. It's it's well, more so even now. That's the way to think about it. Global things because but, you don't know what the. Yeah. But uh, in in. Uh, so in, in the arts, we don't think yeah. we yeah. don't think that. Uh, of course, you also have search. You have an evolutionary algorithm. It works just as a different kind of algorithms. And of course, your emotions can also be characterized computationally as algorithms. And search and the and, landscape are different. Yeah. And they work mm. into the mm. algorithm. So in the arts, is no different. Uh, you're just looking at the different domain and topography. I guess, I guess what I'm One, saying is this: to be very specific, I'd say that if I have a roughly flat solution space with known or guessed at minima, as in many science things, I know what I. I know what kind of search algorithm would best approximate my search for an optimal solution. In the arts, I have no clue about the landscape. No, and I then I have to be creative as I go I, along. I think when you talk to artists, which I do quite a bit, they have very good ideas of what is creative, what is part of the field, yes. what isn't, what is a good artist, what is not. Sure. In fact, they'd be surprising. Sure. But uh, we, we characterize the, the arts also uh, in, in terms of an evolutionary algorithm. The only creative mode yeah, or creativity mode where you have no search is the flow mode because flow is a right. mapping. There's no search um, because you've done the search before, before yeah. because you've yeah. done a deep learning algorithms. Yeah. You, you have yeah. the technology. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. Yeah. when yeah. you actually yeah. combine the string yeah. together, yeah. each one is an input-output, so sure. there's no search. Sure. In flow, there's no search. Sure. But in um, uh, the, the, the search algorithm or the, the evolutionary algorithm is just simply different between the arts and the sciences, but it's still an evolutionary algorithm. We have variation and selection. No, that's yeah. interesting. So, Arna, is there a way of being in flow at will? Is there a way of being creative oh, I wish, and if it were, I wouldn't be sitting here. I would have some palace on top of some hill because (laughs) I would train the American and the Chinese Olympic team because getting into flow, they'd get all the gold medals. Uh, All the musicians who perform in in, in London and the Metropolitan New York. I get it. So when posed in a very rigorous way, of course, it sounds ridiculous. But are we we even somewhat down that road? No, I don't think so. At least Hmm. uh, I don't think we have very good ways of inducing a flow. We don't even have good ideas of facilitating it, even ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, even that would bring a big boost to performance. Whether what would happen arts. in the next 10,000 years? Do, do you think that it's something that can be done? Well, one of the things that we need to know is we have to understand the mechanics of it. You mm-hmm. can't mess with something if you don't understand it at a deeper level. Sure. So reductionistic, I'm of course a hardcore reductionist like all of us here in this room, I suppose. Uh, if we don't understand the psychological phenomena of flow mm-hmm. at a cognitive neural and computational level, it's very hard to mess with it. Uh, but once we understand it, I would not be surprised if we find doors into the phenomena that we can exploit and get people to have the flow state at least uh, more frequently than completely either it comes or it doesn't. You can induce it or increase the chances of inducing it. And even if we don't go in the territory of flow and just talk about creativity in a flatter way, is there a way of speeding it up? Uh, I think that the the same answer applies, that uh, currently we have... No. What progress have we made in the last 60 years on, on this question? So if this question was posed to you in 1900 versus today, um, have we 
made progress in some parts of it. I'm not suggesting that the entire machine is figured out. I think you're quite categorical in saying that it's not, and it's probably far from that. But have we made any Very. progress in that direction? Maybe progress is the wrong word. Have we... No, progress is the right ideas? word, because that's how you're measured. And um, I happen to be within the field of creativity, somebody's very pessimistic about it in terms of the mechanics. <laughs> hmm. um, there are lots of people with lots of suggestions and I'm not seeing them working, these suggestions of either of what creativity is, how the brain does it, what in society facilitates it, what personally, privately facilitates it. Um, I think that we have understood this so little, primarily because we've been stuck over the last 50 years with very few ideas, uh, divergent thinking, right brain, left brain, which is complete garbage, um, and these sort of uh, and these sort of very brute, simplistic ideas about how the brain works, that we have not looked beyond them. I've always quip and say that creativity or the field of creativity has people in it which are probably within the sciences the least creative when it comes to their own <laughs> field of discovering what we are actually looking at. And so I'm, I'm a critic of the field, uh, a quite harsh one too, because I think um, people are very self-indulgent thinking that I figure something out when they haven't. And so because of us not looking further, not improving, not doing progress, we're a bit stuck. And in fact, I don't know whether we have understood the phenomena of creativity and flow and or flow uh, much deeper than Are we did 50 years ago. Are you happy with the current definition? The definition... Is that itself a problem? Yeah, it is a problem um, because, because we cannot... The definition that I gave you with the three criteria is so vague that it's very difficult to do experimental research on it. Right. And that's what you need to do. Right. You ha don't have operational definition of evaluating creativity, of doing creativity testing on humans, of what counts as creativity that we all accept. Right. As such, empirical testing is very difficult to do. And because of that, we have uh, not made much progress. Are we trying to define which is something which is intrinsically amorphous? Well, one of the things that I've been, I've been on about for at least a dozen years is that we should forget about any sort of definition about creativity because there's no such thing. We have to break the beast into pieces. Sure. That's what every science does. Because uh, to ask you about how thinking works, it's about the same how creative thinking exactly. works. You yeah. can ask that a neuroscientist. A neuroscientist will tell you how memory works, how attention works, how perception works. But if I ask that you... That gestalt question probably makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes no sense. So what you have to do first is divide the beast into pieces. Once you have a type of creativity, then maybe of that type you can have a subtype, that of a subtype of a certain phenomena, you can ask a question that you can experimentally test. That's interesting. That, and when we talk about these global, we're essentially doing philosophy here, yeah? <laughs> uh, conceptually. And if we do not do this, um, we, I think, will have no hope of getting a sort of a one-sentence definition of creativity because sure. I think there's no such thing. Creativity manifests itself in the human population with such variety sure, sure, that sure. you don't have a good definition of it that captured it all. So when you say, for instance, daydreaming facilitates creativity, no, it doesn't. Some types, <laughs> some of, types of daydreaming create, facilitate yeah. some types other, of creative processes. And other types do not. In and some, in some people. people. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> exactly true. What's the future, Anita? 
you know, I I tend to see. How do you this, think of it? Do you well, think you know? First of all, I I must say I appreciate what he said about subdividing and subdividing and subdividing because right. that's what we statistical physicists do. Yes. We take a huge problem which sounds oh you know some stock markets or something and he says how does it work? Sure. And until you get into a specific model of a trader right. in a defined community and their interactions and then test it out on not on some huge community, but on something small, and get step-by-step verification so then you're confident of extrapolating to a larger level, we should just shut up. That's that's my feeling about most things. I and agree. And the second, the second thing is that I also believe that my concept of will we ever find the definition of creativity? Well, in this big house, which has many doors, as you said, which we will keep exploring to see different ways, I keep thinking that two of those corridors will always keep leading on, no matter where we are in life. I think it's one of those good Leshebar questions that somehow if we knew it, I personally would be disappointed. <laughs> that's an aesthetic. That's fine. That's fine. I mean, that's that's just, fine. I think I, there, are some, there are some questions which are best left partially answered. Yeah, that's that's magic. I mean, so future deep sea. I'm not suggesting you know the answer, but you get to take a shot at it. So, is artificial creativity going to be possible, or something the equivalent of it? Where are you on some of these notions? And so, questions? I think uh, here's what is going to happen. I, again, I think I completely agree. That the word creativity is overloaded. It's also prestigious. Creative people are, and so so let's let's not talk about creativity. It's easy to abuse that word. Agreed yeah. again. So, I think here's what is going to happen. We'll. We'll understand how the mind works better. We'll understand how algorithms, neural, uh, we'll discover new algorithms. And we'll understand this landscape better. Mm-hmm. Whether we'll understand how the brain works completely, I don't know. I think I'll, I'm with Anita in that. We'll keep on opening doors. Uh, and finding corridors. And finding <laughs> corridors. I think uh, this reductionist approach is best, uh, you know, um, there's a quote by George Polley, a mathematician. He said, if you don't understand something, find the easiest problem that you don't understand and try to understand And try more. to build up and then you know what yeah, the limits then, are. Uh, yeah. No, but shouldn't, I mean, I'm not suggesting that there is one computer program which lives autonomously, but something which is the equivalent of the 10-year rule should apply to Computers? computer systems. Uh, if you ask me, I'm uh, gung-ho, yes, affirmative on computer creativity. I hmm. don't think, as I said, first of all, I think of myself as a computer, I'm a but machine. But it may be misleading to e- equate it with the general notion yeah, of Yeah, it will be a different type of creativity because they have a different type of brain. Right. Yeah? And uh, of course, the structure of the network will produce constraints that are different to ours, but they will be creative by so any this, definition uh, of ours. What is the simplest problem that Polia was talking about in some other context? What is the simplest problem that we don't understand? On In creativity? Oh, simplest problem that we don't understand. It's a good question. Let me think about it. I have to no, think okay. about it as in longer. I'll give what, you an answer what, in a couple of years. What, what is... What do you have a shot at that question? What uh, could that question be? Well, currently <laughs> the you know the currently the uh, uh, the trend in in machine learning and AI is these deep nets, mm-hmm. and they are doing things. As a theoretical computer scientist, as a computer scientist, they are doing things which are very surprising, and I we don't understand them. Uh, I don't understand them. What is the non-obvious thing there? What they're doing? Yeah. Oh, for instance... Uh, they, they I'm not are, suggesting the manifestation of the output. They're classifying things much better than their predecessors. Right. W- w- way better. Nowhere compared to humans, but way better than their previous... Why? Exactly. Why? We don't understand that. Uh, but what's in their algorithms that's different? Um, uh, 
So I'm not an expert, but they have more layers. So it's a neural network with more layers. And they evolve their own algorithms too. The algorithms evolve their own algorithms too. So we no longer just simply type them in. So they have a... So it's a very messy system, actually. They have sure. a huge number of parameters. And, uh, you know, if you if, if there's a parameter set which recognizes cats, a whole different parameter set recognizes dogs. So stochasticity gone mad. It's, that's uh, beautiful. So that's the cat situation, the deep yes, situation. Yes, and I think this is a... And, and many people are trying to understand this. Why do deep nets work? And of course, there's a big hype about it because if you can recognize cats faster... Seemingly, you can make lots of money. <laughs> so, so, but but to me, that's one of the things in in this area which is really uh, well, surprising fine. because they're solving non-convex problems very fast. Perfect. No, I think that's a good note to end this on, and maybe we'll catch up with you, Arna, separately on the simplest question we don't understand in a couple of years. In a couple of <laughs> years, or maybe later. Thanks to all of you for making it. We we'll look forward Thank to having you soon again. Thank you. Thank you. Very Thank you. Much. Take care. Thank, Thank you. you.